You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Well, hello, friends. It has been quite a while, at least for somebody who used to podcast pretty darn consistently every week. It's been quite a while, and I just wanted to come to you with another quick update. You know, a lot of times things like this happen where, you know, you have somebody who's publishing content pretty consistently, and then they say, oh, I'm going to take a little break, but I'll be right back. Um, And then it's basically crickets uh, until the end of time, and you never hear back from them again. Well, um, I'm still uh, on hiatus. I'm still in the middle of a very, very busy season of my life. And frankly, it's like um, just adding the additional publishing element at this time still feels a little uh, optimistic to be able to give my uh, family the time and attention they deserve and my other endeavors the time and attention that they deserve. So I... Um, I'm not resuming uh, publishing uh, with the with the release of this podcast. However, I do want to share uh, with you a couple of quick updates, and then what I'm going to do is play for you a um, a message that I uh, preached at church. So every uh, Wednesday, every Wednesday, uh, every other Wednesday evening um, during the summer uh, with, uh, there were some some interesting things in the schedule, but anyway, for the most part, every other Wednesday has been a teaching opportunity for me. We have been going through the early chapters of Genesis, and I have, uh, basically, our pastor has been exegeting uh, the passage one week, and then the next week, I come in and kind of give the uh, theological side of it and uh, go really deep into the theology and um, in some cases we went really deep into the science and into the philosophy especially a lot of that in uh, Genesis chapter one of course so we did those things Um, not all of them were recorded two of them thus far that I've done have been and the third one should be as well and I am teaching it tomorrow and I'm really excited about it it's gonna be a little controversial but I'm really really excited about it so that's I think gonna be good and if uh, if that gets recorded I will play that for you as well but what I wanted to do was actually share this with you and um, the one that I'm gonna share this week is from Genesis 4 Uh, first just a couple quick announcements Um, again like I'm coming back, okay? That's the biggest takeaway. Um, The Bible Nerd Podcast is coming back. I just don't know exactly when yet. I'm hoping it won't be too long. Now I'm getting ready to come out of uh, uh, one of my super busy seasons, Um, but there's a there's an element to it. I just don't, I'm not comfortable divulging too much at this time because it's not ready to go yet, but um, there's kind of a secondary element here that will um, potentially take up some time, but I'm not sure. So, potentially coming out of one of my busy seasons and as soon as the time frees up for me to be able to devote the the time and attention and level of detail that I want to uh, this ministry activity then I will for certain uh, be resuming it so it's coming back don't you worry about that um, another, uh, I guess, bit of news is I haven't been like for those of you who follow me on social media and stuff I haven't been on social media um in like the past two months. <laughs> um, 
frankly, that's been another part of this whole thing. Um, another thing that I kind of um, have have put on a hiatus, and it's been honestly like some of the most productive um, and even joyous time of my life. I mean, just not. Uh, there for a while, I, I was really, um, I was really involved in social media because I was doing uh, what what I thought to be my part in um, dealing with uh, content related to coronavirus and and other current events type of things, and um, and that was good. I don't regret doing any of that, but it definitely burned me out a little bit on the, on the social media, and it was to the point where every time I opened it, it was like okay, like. It was depressing. I'll just put it put it like that. It was really depressing to even open social media, and I had to to stop. I had to get off of there, so I did. And it's been a really fun, exciting time. So if you haven't heard that much uh, from me on there, it's because um, I haven't been uh, I haven't been on, uh, and just very very rarely to respond to a couple messages here and there. But for the most part, I have not been on social media. So I apologize for my lack of regular presence uh, over there. If you're a person who's used to to seeing me. Um, pop in a lot over there but again I just needed to kind of uh, restore some joy uh, to my day and definitely uh, coming off of social media for the most part um, has been yeah very very helpful to to that end and that is um, certain to continue as well I mean I'm, I'm I'll be back to podcasting I think well before <laughs> I'm back to uh, perusing around on social media so um We'll see. We'll see. Okay. So that's another thing. Um, so another thing is I have been uh, invited and I did participate in, since I've been on hiatus, two uh, YouTube videos with The Mentionables. I'm not sure if you ever heard of The Mentionables, but it's a group of um, uh, apologists that uh, banded together a while back and they started a YouTube channel and a podcast and they even wrote a book. Um and it's called Dimensionables, and I was invited to join them as a network, uh, Mentionables network member some time ago, and um, was invited to provide some theological perspective around the question of basically um, deconversion and eternal security and such on a couple recent broadcasts, and um, I will post the YouTube link in the uh, show notes here to get to those different um, broadcasts and it was it was really significant actually I was I was really honored to be invited on um, kind of the uh, one of the, the head uh, head honchos there of the mentionables uh, Joel Furches is a, a behavioral um, I believe he's a behavioral uh, psychologist um, he calls himself a behaviorist and um, so he's actually been embarking on, and you might have seen him on social media. He's got a couple channels out there. Of course, his personal one, and then uh, the switching sides one. Um, he's been doing some research on deconversion, and so I was quite honored to be invited uh, to be a part of this um, of these couple podcast episodes because he was actually going ahead and announcing his research uh, there that he's been working on for about three years. So the the kind of purpose of those podcasts was to announce the research, kind of talk about the research a little bit. And then my particular role was to provide some theological perspective around the question. Um, and it's anyway, I thought they went really, really well, particularly the second one. By the time we got to the end, we got some really, really helpful categories, some areas for new research possibly that came out of this. And just um, with all the deconversion stuff happening, I can't stress how important this is. So 
I actually think it was very, very significant. I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if they'll uh, allow me to republish it here on the podcast. I'm not sure if they will or not, so no promises there. But uh, perhaps I'd be able to republish that here on the podcast so you can listen to it here. And then certainly I'll link you over to the mentionable stuff. But they put out some really good content, so I would totally invite you to, um, to check them out. Okay, here's a, another thing. Here's a, it's actually a question for you. Um, I have had some reports, I think three now, of people telling me that they have trouble playing my podcast and only my podcast. Like they'll, they'll try to play it for, you know, I don't know, five, ten minutes um, or maybe longer. But then if they, if they stop it and then have to restart it and come back, it starts back from the beginning and it just starts re- basically restarting itself no matter what player they're using. It's really odd. I've reached out to the support team over where I host my podcast, and they don't seem to be able to 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 help with it. Uh, unfortunately, um, it doesn't seem to be something uh, that they're that they're showing to be on their end. Um, can you do me a favor? And I I mean this really. Like, if if you are experiencing playback issues with this podcast, will you please write me and let me know, Steve at steveshram.com. Only if you are experiencing playback issues. I want to know about it. I want to know how many of you are unable to play this thing. Please do that for me. Um, the more, the merrier, because then I can kind of help narrow down situations and maybe get them uh, t- to be able to support me a little further on fixing the issue. So uh, I know there's at least three of you that are having some trouble with this. And if there's more, I want to know who you are. Maybe maybe a final thing before I go ahead and play this for you is uh, I actually did work on getting the physical version of one of my ebooks out and ready to go, and it's actually available on Amazon right now. So if you go to Amazon, you can grab uh, the physical version of God, the Great Commission, and You. Uh, that's one of my ebooks that I have out there. Um, the physical is more because of shipping and things like that, of course, but. Um, but if you're somebody who likes to read physical books and you haven't gotten that one because uh, it was only available as an ebook, you can now go purchase the physical copy of that. All right. Well, I think right now that's all I have for you. Again, the biggest takeaway is just that I am coming back, just not yet. In the meantime, I'm going to share this uh, um, audio recording with you of this message that I uh, taught, this lesson that I taught on Genesis 4. And then I have another one that I'm going to share with you that we did on Acts 26. And then another one, uh, again, hopefully is going to be coming up soon. And it deals with Genesis 6 and the sons of God. So I'm super excited about that. All right. God bless you. It's been a joy. It's been um, uh, an honor serving you all this time. And I just can't wait to get back to doing it. So um, we'll see you in the next one.
is kind of the plain sense reading uh, of a passage. Certainly, the Bible uh, is one of those interesting books, and one of the reasons I think we can say that the Bible is a supernatural book and one of its divine qualities is that there are uh, parts of the biblical story that are so simple that a child can understand, and yet there are such intelligent people in the world who uh, have just wrapped their brains for centuries and centuries trying to figure out and can never just get to it, can never get to those same truths. Um, I think about my son Ryder, he's four years old, and he's starting to ask some pretty intense questions, and I'm like, man, I was not ready for that, but you know, I was saved when I was his age, that's when I began to, to walk with the Lord, and it's been a journey ever since then, but um, how is it that, I mean, this is the gospel, right, it's something that a four-year-old could understand, and yet, I mean, when I was four years old, I promise you, I had no idea what Theopneustos meant. I had no idea what the hypostatic union was. Uh, sometimes I still wonder whether or not. Uh, but it's like these are concepts that theologians have wrestled with for centuries and millennia. And yet, uh, biblical stories are so beautiful that even a child can understand it. And, um, but the thing to realize is, just like we saw with Genesis 3, it's like there's this, this first layer that you can read it and you can understand what it says. But the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and yet he made such a big point of the fact that we need to move, not just pastors, not just theologians, from the milk to the meat. When we really dig in and we really dive in and start to peel, peel back the curtain and, and look at what's going on, um, I want to say behind the text, but it's not really behind the text, it's just that we're so far removed from the time it was written that sometimes there are concepts and things that pop up that are harder for us to spot. But they are certainly there. So that's what we're going to kind of do tonight. I'm not going to go verse by verse through the chapter, but we are going to move from the beginning of the chapter to the end and uh, kind of pick out some interesting concepts and, uh, and see where we land tonight and see uh, how much of this uh, that we get through. All right? Um, let's begin. Uh, I'm just going to give you just kind of a, a, a quick overview of things, uh, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the specific sections. Maybe one more general point I should make is that there are things in the Bible, there are clues, okay, that, that the text in the Bible gives you when it's kind of like, oh, like I should look into this a little deeper. Because maybe you don't know, like, when is that the case? Maybe there are some things that are just like the face value, like that's all there is to it. Uh, and it might still be profound, but you don't know, like, is there any, is there any deeper truth to dig out here? I'll tell you at least two times when I think that you can tell that there's something that needs to be extracted that's just begging to be, like, dug out of the text. One of those is when you hear something that sounds really weird. <laughs> if you hear something that sounds strange, if it's in the Bible and it's strange, it sounds weird to you, it's probably really, really important. And the reason is because, again, it, it might be something that wouldn't have sounded so strange if you were living when the Bible was being authored thousands and thousands of years ago over that 15 to 1600 year period of time. But, but now, as a modern reader, you're like, oh, okay, I don't really understand this. So that's when it's time to dig in deeper. The other time um, that is really prominent is when you see things that appear to be contradictory. So maybe you're reading the Bible and you stumble across something that says one thing, but then it says something else. So I'm going to use a kind of facetious example, right? But sometimes it talks about how um, the Lord appears bodily somebody, right? How Yahweh, how the God of the Hebrews appears in bodily form. But then you read later on in the book of John that God is a spirit, and you're supposed to worship him in spirit and in truth. And guess what? You can't see the spirit. You can't feel the spirit. You can't 
touch his spirit. And it turns out, if you look a lot, it's like, okay, that sounds contradictory off the top of your head. But it turns out that if you look deeper there, yeah, you're going to find some pretty cool stuff um, as to what it was like when God manifested himself in the form of a person, even back in the Old Testament. That's just an example of the kind of thing that you'll see when you're looking at the Bible and it's like, okay, this sounds weird, this sounds like a contradiction. If you dig deeper, you're in for an awesome journey of discovery, uh, I think. So... That's just some examples. So we're going to see some things that are kind of uh, like that as we go through the text today. So, um, again, you understand the story. Kind of the first uh, half of Genesis chapter 4 deals with the story of Cain and Abel. I think if I were to go around the room and ask everyone in the room tonight, we all kind of have a basic understanding of the story of, of, of Cain and Abel. Essentially, they both offer sacrifice to God. God accepts one sacrifice and rejects the other sacrifice. And uh, Cain is really mad at what God did, so God goes, uh, so Cain goes out and he slays Abel, he kills Abel, and then that makes up about the first half. Uh, God judges him and so forth. That makes up about the first half of it, and then uh, the second half of it is basically what happened with Cain's lineage after that. Like they, they go and they start building cities, and mankind starts to kind of do its own thing. And then at the very end of the chapter, you find out about Seth. Uh, Seth basically the replacement for Abel, right, in, in a sense. Um, it, it, he's God's, God you know, replaces Abel with Seth to be kind of the righteous uh, brother, uh, so to speak. And so that is essentially Genesis chapter 4. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. So let's look at uh, verses number 6 and 7. So this is right after God uh, rejects Cain's offering. And I thought about talking about that more, but I'm going to resist because Pastor Jake did a really great job, I felt, last week of, of kind of talking about the different ways people think about why he might have accepted Cain's offer um, over uh, over Abel's offer. So I'm going to skip that, but I want to go into, into to verse 6 and verse 7. It says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. I'm interested in that phrase right there that says, If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Now, maybe um, this is something that you never had a problem with. You looked at that and you said, Okay, that makes sense to me. Well, guess what? It's never really made sense to me, uh, including up until last week. Uh, when I was looking at it more carefully, and, and, and Pastor Jake was teaching through this, I was like, what does, what does that mean? And so I used my own metric, right? I was like, this sounds kind of weird, at least to me. I, I don't really understand what it means for sin to be lying at the door. That doesn't make much sense to me. So I immediately looked it up and thought, there's got to be more to this. And sure enough, there is. So the word, uh, the Hebrew word there for lieth, right, is the word ravats. Ravats. It's, it's just spelled, Hebrew has no vowels, only consonants, so it's spelled R-B-S. That's the spelling of the word. And the word uh, essentially means to crouch on all four legs, folded like a recumbent animal. Like, basically what that means is like an animal waiting to pounce. That's what this means. So, it's talking about sin, basically personified, like an animal just waiting to pounce. However, there's a little bit more to it than that. And the section that I'm talking about here kind of deals with what I'm calling the words behind the words. So the word lieth seems to be a pretty simple word, but what does the word, you know, the actual Hebrew word, how do we 
parse that out and think about it a little deeper. Well, it turns out that uh, this word has the same uh, root meaning as another word in the Akkadian language. Okay, so it's called a cognate. And that's when two separate but related languages draw words that have a similar root, okay, that is similar, uh, it's called an etymology, okay? And this word, ravats, is related to the Akkadian word. Again, they both have a very similar origin. They're both called Semitic languages, okay, they're the same kind of language. The Akkadian word, ravitsu, ravitsu. So what is a ravitsu? That is the question. Well, the ravitsu, I'm just going to read this to you from the Faith Life Study Bible. It's a really helpful tool that uh, brings out some of these concepts. It says this, quote, the Hebrew word ravats is also associated with the Akkadian word ravitsu, which in Mesopotamian religion is used in reference to demons that were believed to guard entrances to buildings. Thus, it's possible that sin is being personified here as a demonic force waiting to pounce on Cain. This fits with the curse of the serpent, who God says will strike at the evil of the people. So immediately, we see this. We see these words: sin lieth at the door. And certainly, as we dig it out, that has some practical meaning. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was. And so I keep digging and digging deeper. Now it turns out all of a sudden that this word is at least very potentially related to the same to, to, to these beings that were considered demons that guarded uh, entrances to buildings. And it's like, what on earth? Well, fortunately, a Hebrew scholar, uh, Kenneth Matthews, he connected the dots for me. I hope it connects them for you. He says uh, this, quote, Here we come to another interpretive obstacle in the verse. How to understand sin as crouching, and what is meant by door? What does this mean? Sin is likened to an animal crouching or lurking at the door, meaning the animal's resting place, ready to stir if incited. Crouch is commonly used of domesticated animals in repose, including wild animals such as the lion. This picture sin temporarily obey and subject to its master becoming alive when stirred. Some commentators have compared the Hebrew, um, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one, uh, but it, it means uh, crouch, uh, it's the same kind of, it's based on the same Greek word, um, to the Akkadian cognate term Ramisu, a mythological demon attending to the doorways of buildings to guard its inhabitants or conversely to threaten them. So you could translate it, sin is a demon at the door. If there's an allusion to the door demon, then the narrative is personifying sin as a demonic spirit ready to pounce on Cain once he opens the door of opportunity. This may well correspond with the seed of the serpent in 3.15, which would do battle with the seed of the woman Eve. The imagery is effectively the same, and the message is clear. Sin can be stirred up by wrong choices. Sin can be stirred up by wrong choices. So, you know, for me, maybe that's exactly the impression that you got from it when you first read those words. Um, please come study my Bible if so, because I didn't get that, right? Like, I just didn't, I wasn't, I, I didn't understand it. And then I read this, and I'm like, holy cow, like, this has serious significance. And so it's like, anybody back then, like, the original readership who was a literate reader, they would have understood uh, the scholars of the day, they would have understood these different languages and how these different words were used, especially in a language similar to their own. And they would have immediately seen these words and got this concept of this, of this is how dangerous sin is. It's like 
those door demons, those darn Acadians are always talking about, that will get you the minute you you incite them, you're trying to get into the door of their building, that kind of thing, right? So there's this whole, like, matrix of ideas going on in the mind of the person originally reading this. And that's what I want you to, 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 to start learning how to tap into. That's part of what makes the Bible just so exciting. It's just all this richness to learn. But the message is clear and very practical for you and me. When we do wrong, right, judgment follows. But oftentimes, it's not judgment that comes, like, directly from God in that situation. It's it's sin has consequences. And those consequences naturally follow from the sin that's being committed, from, from what you do to step out of line. And so that's the point that's being made here um, in the text. So words behind the words, oftentimes there are things that you, you can see uh, in the text if you look a little deeper that might make the actual, what the text is trying to convey a little clearer. Let's look at the second thing I want to talk to you about, and this kind of encompasses the whole Cain and Abel story. So we're not going to read the whole story. We've already summarized it. And we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, Moses in the Cain and Abel story. If you're like me, um, uh, I fully believe that Moses was the author of I think it's obvious that, you know, if you look back in there, we can see some, sometimes where place names and things like that were updated and springing, uh, not really disputed. I mean, there are definitely some people who, who wrote in the Pentateuch after Moses. Um, the simplest example is that somebody had to write the part about how Moses died uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, right? So that's like a really simple example of that. So that kind of thing was going on. But for the most part, I believe Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. You actually see a lot of... Um, they're called motifs, okay? You see a lot of motifs here in the Cain and Abel story that get addressed later on in Moses's writing. And perhaps this is something you never saw before. And, I, you know, uh, in studying this out, I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting. So I'm going to read you this quote, kind of describing these by uh, one of my favorite Hebrew scholars uh, and Old Testament scholars, uh, Alan Ross, and he's a great writer. Here's what he has to say about this. So in the whole Cain and Abel story, quote, Several mosaic motifs are found in here. One, sacrifices should be offered to God from a heart of faith. They should be the best of the livestock, the firstborn. That's verse 4. Again, that's something that we see in later mosaic writing. Number two, the Israelites had responsibilities to their brothers. They were each other's keepers and must not kill one another. Number three, homicidal blood polluted the land. Crying out for vengeance, spilled blood, raises its voice of accusation. That's found here in Cain and Abel's story, verse 10. Number four, blood revenge was averted by God through protective care, just as later removal to a city of refuge would avert an avenger. Number five, punishment for guilt was at the foundation of Israel's theocracy. Number six, life without God is a dangerous life without protection. And number seven, and this is one of my favorites, sometimes the elder was rejected in favor of the younger, turning the normative societal custom around. So we have a lot of concepts here that are like, we see these things all over, and if you've read through uh, the Pentateuch any number of times as a uh, as a believer, and uh, having read through 17, I'm sure Pastor Sue here has picked up on some of those themes. You see a lot of these themes uh, later on in Moses' writing. And so you see how um, the way that the story is being written here, the way that it played out in history, is in concert with those 
themes. And even though this is a couple thousand years removed in time from when Moses was on the scene and doing his writing, it's like you see this consistency all throughout uh, the Bible in the way that these stories are told. Now, the one of them that I mentioned that I really love, um, you, you see this theme in the Bible of the elder being rejected in favor of the younger. The elder uh, in, in the lineage being rejected in favor of the younger. Here's some times that you see this. Uh, obviously, Cain and Abel, right? So Cain was the older, Abel was the younger, and Abel was killed. So God brought Seth onto the scene, and what happened? Cain got shipped off, right, out into to no man's land, and Seth continued the lineage, right, continued not the line of God's people, okay? Shem and Japheth, after the flood, same thing. Herod and Abraham, again, same thing. It was, it, Abraham was not the firstborn, but it was Abraham who the line continued through. This is another really obvious one, Ishmael and Isaac. You'll remember that Ishmael was born first to Abraham, to Hagar, the handmaid, right? But then, but, but, but God says, no, he's not going to be the one, right? He's not going to be the one. It's going to be Isaac. So Ishmael gets sent off, and God says, yep, your, your land is going to be blessed too, and you're going you're to have lots of kids and all that, right? But Isaac was allowed to continue the godly line, and, and so, so on and so forth. Same thing with Esau and Jacob. Jacob had the birthright, Esau had the birthright, but he sold it to Jacob. Esau was rejected, remember, in Romans 8, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, right? And Jacob is the one who's allowed to continue the line, even though he is the younger. Reuben and Joseph, same thing. Reuben had the birthright, but he was rejected. Joseph made it up and became vice pharaoh, and God's plan continued through him. Uh, Zerah and Perez, those are the twins of Tamar. And then, of course, the most obvious example of this is Israel. Christ. Israel was chosen. Israel was first, but they rejected God, and God rejected them and brought Christ on the scene and made salvation through him available to all. So you see this thing, and it's like, okay, this is like, this is happening a lot. Maybe this means something. Maybe this is actually, maybe it's like this for a reason. And you start to think about things like that. And uh, so what's the point of that? Well, here's the point. Um, in ancient civilization, it was societal, like the way that they did things was the firstborn got the birthright, got the blessing. The firstborn got the birthright, got the blessing. Like, that was, that was the deal. That was the custom. But God says, no, you don't operate just based on your relative, like, time and place in history. That stuff's not important. What's important is that my plans and my purposes are accomplished. And just to kind of put a practical, you know, uh, you know, kind of layer onto that, I mean, isn't that the way it is oftentimes when God calls us to do something, it stands in complete and total opposition to the way the rest of the world is doing things. It's not oftentimes how society does it. It's not oftentimes how culture does it. But it's how he wants it. And it's how he arranges it. And you see this taught this whole entire concept taught throughout the Bible and kind of this string of events that happen, and where again the elder is rejected and the younger is put forward. And so this teaches us actually a lot about God and how He wishes to operate in the world. All right, let's move on to uh, what I'm calling here the geography of early Genesis. This is covered in verses 13 through 22. 
And so uh, what this deals with is basically after Cain gets uh, thrown off of the scene, it says that he starts to move uh, east of Eden and wanders into the, the land of Nod. So I want to kind of set up this question for you. Now, this is something that maybe you've never thought of. Um, you know, traditionally how we understand Genesis, and again, I mentioned this before, I'm a, I'm a young earth creationist, so I'm one of those weird people who thinks the earth is probably about 6,000 or so years old. I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in millions of years of geological time. Uh, I don't think there's enough evidence for those things. And I think that the evidence that the biblical text gives us that those timelines are shorter is stronger than the evidence that is, is marshaled from science for those other things. So, that would be pretty consistent with traditional teaching and traditional theology. I would say that Adam and Eve were the first human pair. If you believe that Adam and Eve were truly the first human pair, then you pretty much have to be a young earth creationist uh, in order to remain consistent. Okay, so that's just kind of correlating to that. But, but then if that's the case, right, if they're the, only, if they're the only humans around at the time of creation, then you've got Cain born, and then you've got Abel born, and then you've got Seth born. That's all the Bible tells us about right there. How is it that there appear to be all these other cities? Like, what is the land of God? Where does that come from? Who lives there? Where, where, were there other people around? Was it just out of people? You know, there's all of these questions that kind of pop up after that. So, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, this, this is really fascinating, right? I'd love to, to dig into this stuff. There are a couple different things we can talk about here. One of them is this. So, the land of God in verse 16 says this, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of God on the east of Eden. So where is this land of God other than east of Eden? We have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Nobody has any clue. There, there is no place name in uh, historical reporting at all other than the Bible here of what the land of God was. There's no like alternative names for it. There's no archaeology that has shed any light on this. Nobody has a clue. Here's what we do know. The word used for uh, God, the word God, means restless wanderer. That's what the word means. What was Cain after he was right out of God's presence? If anybody was a restless wanderer, it's him. Right? So, uh, what does that mean? Well, I mean, it could mean that it's purely symbolic. I mean, it could mean that, right? It could mean that maybe, maybe uh, you know, it's just the Bible says he went this place because that's the kind of person that, that he was, a restless wanderer. Uh, we know that names were very important, much more important back in Bible days than they are like today. Back in the day when people were named the names, it was because those words had a very particular meaning. And it's not often that we name people according to the meaning of names today. We're just kind of like, oh, like, Susie so and so's kids has that name, and I want that name, so I'm going to name my kid that one. Right? Uh, that's how we do it. Um, or if you're like me and Tiffany, you just spend hours and hours and hours and hours looking online for a new name because the other three kids have already taken the rest of them. <laughs> so, a couple different ways about uh, doing it. But, so, it could be, right, that it, it's, just, it's called God because that's what Cain was. He's a restless water. Um, I think more likely it is that, but it's also that it's just that the place was literally called that, but it, it became that because that's where Cain settled and that's who Cain was, right? The restless wanderer. So it says it was east of Eden, so I have every reason to think they're talking about a real place that existed, but they called it that, um, I think, because that's just what Cain was. Okay, but now who, who was in this city? Well, eventually it's populated by the people of Cain, but where did Cain get his life? Like, if there's no other people, following me? Like, where, where, where did Cain's wife come from? This is one of those age-old questions. Uh, so I think it was probably one of his sisters. And you're like, well, 
wow, that sounds weird. Well, I agree. However, it would not have been so weird back then. Give me three quick reasons why. First of all, they could have been separated by many, 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 many years. Okay, the average age, the average lifespan back then was just like a couple years more than it is now. It was about 857. Okay, that was the average lifespan. So it's at least possible, right, that, that Cain and his sister were separated by a great amount of time, and that that great amount of time, relatively speaking, wouldn't have been that big of a deal because of how long they lived. Yeah, problem. So that's at least one piece of the puzzle. I don't think that poses too big of a problem. Okay, the other thing is that there's no actual biblical problem with that because laws against this kind of thing were not instituted until Leviticus 18. So it's a while before they received the law, and at that time there would have been um, some scientific reasons, which we're going to talk about, that it wouldn't have been preferable for that to be the case. So at this point in time, again, at this point in history, it's not wrong practically, and it's not wrong ethically, but it's also not wrong scientifically because... There, uh, of the way that DNA works, the way that uh, in order to get the diversity that we see in the world today, it would have meant uh, that Adam and Eve needed to be designed in a particular way. I'm going to read a quote from some geneticists because they know a whole lot more about it than I do. So here's the quote from uh, Nathaniel Jensen and uh, Jeff Tompkins, uh, both who I've interacted with before, and great guys and Christian uh, geneticists. They say this, quote, God could have created Adam and Eve with genetic differences from the start. In fact, all of us possess not just 3 billion DNA letters in ourselves, with few exceptions, such as red blood cells, the cells of our body possess two versions of our 3 billion letters, which means that each of our cells has 6 billion letters. Each parent passes only 3 billion in sperm or egg, keeping the total of 6 billion letters constant across generations. Going back in time, Adam would likely have had the same cellular arrangement, two versions of his three billion letters, and the same would have been true of Eve. This arrangement makes sense of the DNA differences that exist in the world today. Before the fall and after the fall, the two different copies of Adam and Eve's DNA would have been reshuffled via at least two processes termed recombination and gene conversion, making each offspring unique and leading to diversity within the human race. So basically what that means is they were created in such a way that it would not be genetically bad or harmful. Now today, if you married your sister and had kids with your sister, you would have serious issues, okay? You'd have, you'd have problems practically, ethically, and scientifically, okay? But you wouldn't have any of those problems in the very beginning after humanity was just created, okay? So that's not an issue. That's not something that we should let get in our way. So probably it would be just fine if that is how it went in the beginning. It does raise another question. Um, something known as pre-atomism. This was discussed way back in the day before evolutionary science and all that, and it's only gotten worse since then. Pre-atomism is this idea that, well, maybe there were humans that lived before Adam, or if they were human, they were something at least like Adam. They would have had to look quite a bit like Adam and, and behave quite a bit like Adam, and so on and so forth. And it, basically, if you take one of the positions other than what the younger creationist positions, if you, if you believe in evolution or if you those kind of mainstream uh, positions, then you have to believe something like this, something like pre-Adamism, that there were people prior to Adam and Eve, and that God somehow selected Adam and Eve out of a pre-existing population and said, hey, you guys are going to be humans. And, 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 and people who take that position would say that the Bible only deals from that point forward, uh, and not from there. Uh, the problem is, well, a couple things, but biblically, I think we're committed 
actual human beings. And because of the job that they did, that would also kind of get in the way that, uh, that the human beings are, like me and you. Um, the kind of things that we can do, the kind of thoughts that we can think, the, the way that we interact with the world and with God, um, it would only make sense that Adam and Eve were the, had to be the first kind of those based on what the Bible says. Okay? We give you some things here. This is a quote from Dr. Bill Barrett, uh, that Old Testament scholar. Well, it's clear from God's prohibition with regard to eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that the man was under his creator's authority. The perfect, sinless human being was not a god himself. He was the servant of the creator god. To emphasize the seriousness of the prohibition, God also announced the penalty for disobedience. You shall surely die. Although the statement referring ultimately to physical death, the immediate reality consisted of spiritual death separation from fellowship with God. As Collins points out, he's referencing John Collins, the best understanding of the text is that the two kinds of death are the two aspects of one experience. Evidence that there were no other human beings in existence comes when God himself declared that the man was alone. Notice this here. The term alone does not mean lonely. It does not mean lonely because lonely refers to a state of mind and emotions rather than to a state of existence. Adam's lone existence was not good because it did not allow for God's mandate to be obeyed and fulfilled. In other words, God did not consider Adam's situation good, not because Adam is lonely or has no lively intellectual conversation when he comes in from the garden at nights, but because he will have no chance at all of feeling the earth as long as there is only one of them. Okay? So, he's basically saying that because of the job God gave Adam, it was necessary that another one be created. But why would God have to create another one if there were already thousands of them existing? See how that doesn't make any sense? So the Bible would seem to commit us to the fact that this is the first human being um, Adam. Okay? I'm not going to read this next quote that I have, but it essentially talks about how the term for breath of life that she is. Um, and uh, the, the actual term is uh, Nismat and Hayim. Okay? And that, the way that that refers to uh, you see uh, examples of that in Job 32 and also in Proverbs 20. And the meaning is uh, understanding and conscience, things of that nature that we need in order to understand and interact with God. And those terms are only used in human life. Okay? So the Bible makes this fundamental distinction between human life and animal life, a distinction that doesn't exist or in, in the evolutionary thinking. Uh, and, and if those aren't good enough for you, how about the Apostle Paul? I think he's a pretty good source, right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 45 through 48, uh, excuse me, 15, 45 through 48. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And so on and so forth, comparing Adam to Christ, Adam to Christ. You've got the first man, and then you've got uh, the, essentially the replacement, right? You've got Christ coming on the scene. So um, the point being, right, that to, to get the scenario described in the Bible, Adam and Eve were in. They were the first human couple. And um, the other kind of corollary to that is that the, the text is meant to tell us everything. So it could be that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters prior to that point. That's where Cain got his wife, etc. So there's the geography of, of early Genesis. Uh, there's no reason to think that, that there were thousands and thousands of human-like creatures on this earth prior to that, just because it says that there were some cities uh, out there in the, in, in the beginning of time. Okay, now, now, the more practical point here is that this is describing the 
this whole spread of a sin sickened generation. A generation that has now been forever uh, until Christ's redemption and ultimate return. Um, sickened by sin, by the curse of death and sin. And um, I just think this is really interesting because it's like, uh, let me just read this to you. The narrative now traces the line of pain to its full development. What becomes of a society that rebels against God and leaves the land of blessing in angry defiance of his laws and sacrifices? In this case, it prospers. But the righteous should neither envy the wicked nor fall on their way of life. God allows them to prosper in their earthbound way because they produce music, weapons, agricultural devices, and cities. Culture. It's their only recourse in a bitter, cursed world. Not so are the righteous. Some who trace their lineage to Seth, the replacement of Abel, began to make proclamation in the name of the Lord. These, Noah and Abram, among others, declare the truth to their generations. That's why God allowed those lines to continue. Some people, though only a remnant, do not go overboard in living in a good life, but are concerned with things spiritual. Israel should trace her ancestry back to Enos. And again, it's in 426 where it says um, that Enos began to call, uh, and there began, began to call on the name of the Lord. So what's the practical point there, right? Again, kind of who cares about this stuff? Is it just for super nerdy people like me? Well, here's a question for you, for reflection based on what we've learned here. What did... Cain, and then what did Cain's descendants do whenever punishment came because of the wrong choices that they made, right? So sin got a hold of them. What did they do? So here's a question for reflection. Do we occupy our time and go about building our own civilizations because we're actually running from God? So think about that. I'm not talking about, you know, it has nothing to do with whether or not you have money or whether or not you have like, physical possession. It has nothing to do with that at all. The point is, are you living a life in which you distract yourself with the things of the world? Go about your time, go about your life, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of mentality, right? Uh, because so oftentimes when you look at people and you talk to people who go through these deconversion stories and stuff, where it's like they left Christianity for something else, very few times are there legitimate intellectual reasons for it. What you end up finding out is that they just wanted to kind of go on and do their own thing. They wanted to live the good life. The world they want to experience culture and be people who would be accepted. I'm just, I'm just telling you. That. I mean, I've talked to them. Right? I've seen their stories. I've talked to them personally. Like this is the kind of thing you see, and they'll tell you that it's for intellectual reasons. Uh, there's this one pastor that I spoke to uh, on multiple occasions. Excuse me, he's a former pastor. He's written books and all this stuff. And if you look at like his Twitter timeline right now, it's just full of the most like vile and disgusting stuff ever. Right? It's like he's completely taken.
sake of time, uh, I'm not sure which one. I've got three more things I could talk about, but I'm probably only going to get to talk about one. So I have to make the crucial uh, decision of cutting something out of my message, which is always just painful uh, for a guy like me. Uh, but I'm going to do it uh, for your sake and for mine. Talk about what I think is probably the most uh, important thing that I can that I can give you from from this passage. Um, if you look at verse uh, number 19 here. Uh, it has some interesting stuff. It says, uh, And Lamech took unto him two wives, and the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And uh, in verses uh, 24 25, we're not going to read them, but essentially uh, those verses are thought to be the first, the first actual uh, written poetry in the Bible, and, and they follow what's called a synonymous uh, parallelism. It's a structure of Hebrew poetry, and basically, uh, there is Lamech talking about his wives again. So, some will claim that because the Bible clearly describes situations in which individuals, even followers of God, were polygamous, that it necessarily affirms this behavior and this lifestyle. And um, the problem with this Right? And you see what's going on here, right? I don't think I have to spell it out for anybody. Basically, Lamech has two wives, and, and the biblical teaching is basically one man, one woman, for one lifetime, you know, together one flesh, that kind of thing. So how is it, right, that these people have uh, polygamous interactions going on? And we even see some complicated situations later on where uh, David is involved in this kind of stuff. His son Solomon certainly was. But David was involved in this kind of stuff. And we even see this one circumstance where, where God is telling David, like, look, I, I got all these awesome things for you. Like, why are you still disobeying me, right? And one of those things he talked about is like, look, I, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you the kingdom, I'm giving you all these wives and all these other things. And it's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Like, how, how is it that David has all these wives and he's a man after God's own heart and that's okay? And what do I do with this, <laughs> right? Like, this is maybe a tougher thing than sometimes we think about. Uh, let me just kind of give you a general point. I'll, I'll make some practical examples of how this works, and then um, we'll be wrapping up. So, it's really important, and so many times when I see people who uh, who do raise legitimate intellectual questions and things of what's going on in the Bible, it's like, I really don't understand this, help me understand. A lot of times, it comes down to the fundamental distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. Okay, prescriptive is something that, like, if you like, truly grasp this in many different areas of Bible study, this is going to help you. This is going to help clear up a lot of things, especially if you have things that you start to raise some doubts about. This is one of the biggest concepts, so I, I thought it was important to maybe spend some time talking about the, the more general point. All right, descriptive versus prescriptive. All right, and you probably get what that means, but I'm going to just explain it a little bit further. Basically, if something is descriptive, it means it's describing what happened. If it's prescriptive, it means it's prescribing what you should do. It means you, you should take from this truth that you apply to your life. Okay? And so many times people get this confused, right? Like the whole and whole movements are based on this stuff. I'm telling you, like, like all this stuff you see about prosperity gospel and stuff like that. Like, a lot of this stuff at the very core is based on missing this. It's missing the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. So if you get this, it helps with a lot. So I identified three categories, there may be more, but I identified three categories that if 
you understand these, I think it's going to probably cover the, the majority of cases for you in which this kind of thing is going on. All right, the, the first of those is with uncomfortable details. Okay, uncomfortable details. So sometimes the Bible accurately records information that might not make sense given our time and place in history. I think the door demon thing was probably a good example of that, right? Like it accurately records this thing, but we don't know anything about door demons. Uh, at least I don't, right? Although there was that weird thing. Did y'all see that thing on TikTok or I've had to show me this, right? Where it's like, you know, you point a little thing and, and it, it makes it look like a heat map thing. And it looks like, you know, people and dead people walking in their house. Have y'all seen this? Wow, okay, that, okay, so uh, don't look at it because it, I, I know it's not real, but it's like, okay, this is a little creepy. So don't go on TikTok and look for the paranormal TikTok stuff. That's weird. Stay away from it. Okay? Um, that's uh, probably the most helpful bit of advice I could give you tonight. But seriously, like, I don't know anything about door demons other than perhaps what was on TikTok that night. Uh, and so uh, there are other things in the Bible like this, like uh, the giants and the Joshua's conquest there. Like, th- does it really make sense to us in our time and place in history to see uh God's people, like literally wiping out all of the men, women, and children in certain people groups, just presumably just so that they could take out these people so that they could inherit the land, because it was the land God gave them. Guess what? There's a whole lot more to that story that we can't get into tonight, so stay tuned for some other time. Uh, But that's one of those things where it's like, it would take a lot, there's an explanation for it, and I think a really good one, but it would take digging pretty deep to get to that and understand that. So, it's like, this is an uncomfortable detail, but if you dig deep enough, you'll be able to uncover it. Or, uh, and some people have disagreement about this passage, but I think it just kind of means what it says. In Judges 11, you see this really awkward circumstance where this guy Jephthah is like, look, uh, God, if, if, if this particular thing happens, like, whatever the first thing that I see, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. Like, if you give me this victory, I'm going to sacrifice to you. And it ends up being his daughter. And it's like the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter. Again, there are alternative explanations for that, but I personally don't buy them. I think it just means what it says. I think that's what happened, and yeah, uh, that's pretty uncomfortable. Or how about the descent uh, of angels to earth who interbred with humans and made the earth so wicked that God destroyed the whole thing with a flood in Genesis 6? That's pretty tough, right? I mean, that's, that's uncomfortable at first glance. And there's super cool and fascinating and good explanations for this stuff that takes diving into theology. But this is one of these things where it's like, you know, it's like these are details that can be understood if you realize that the Bible is describing things that happened in the past. You have to be able to get that. So... Some are going to shudder that these kind of stories are found within Scripture right off. But I think it's a good thing because it means that the Bible is telling the truth about history. It's not holding anything back or making things sound more comfortable or whatever. It's like, okay, this is what actually happened, so let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. So that's one example. Uh, Another example of where you you just have to get this idea of prescriptive versus descriptive is theological consistency. So because the Bible records accurate historical information, it will give the true accounts of sometimes theologically perverse behavior, okay, even among followers of Yahweh. Again, I mentioned David. The many failures of David, uh, in particular the incident with Bathsheba, right? How does a man after God's own heart go after this woman and then have his husband or her husband uh, killed who was supposedly his friend, right, has this guy killed uh, so that they don't find out, he doesn't find out that he got this girl pregnant. But what's with that? Man after God's own heart, David, like, what, what's the deal? Again, do you and I 
mess up on a daily basis? Yeah, right? We still get to be followers of Yahweh, right? Because that's where we place our loyalty. We believe in Him. The same is true of David. But that doesn't mean that we don't get to see what happens. Now, this is the dude who's in the line of Christ, right? He, Christ takes on the throne of David. And yet David did these kind of things. Why? Because the Bible describes what happens. It doesn't hold back details. So it doesn't feel comfortable. That it's described. It doesn't mean that we should do what David did, even though David was a man after God's own heart. So descriptive versus prescriptive, right? We should do those things which God prescribes for us that are in line with the good things that David did. But we don't do everything that he describes just because he did it. Um, the apprehensiveness of Jesus, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Like it shows Jesus himself in this moment of, of fleshly weakness. And, and yet this guy is God, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. So you see that, Peter's denial of Christ, things like that. Um, and this issue of polygamy falls into this category. Right? This is one of those things that is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying, hey, you should do this because this is a, a good thing. Right? It's, this is what happened. And by the way, oftentimes you'll notice, and this is, this is where you can get the biblical truth out of it, but people who just want to find problems in the Bible won't look this far. Notice how the Bible deals, how God deals, and how other people in the Bible deal with these circumstances. For example, the circumstance of David. Remember, God sends Nathan the prophet, tells him this story, and David's like, you got to take this guy's head off. And Nathan's like, thou art the man. He's the one that told us. Right? There was judgment for that. This, this whole scenario with the polygamous guy, Lamech, it's not a good situation. It ends in absolute utter disaster for the whole rest of the human race. And eventually it gets so bad that God destroys the world with a flood. Like, there's always consequences for this stuff. So don't get tripped up because the Bible describes something that doesn't mean it's endorsing it. Finally, uh, and this is kind of the worst one that I see uh, on, a, on a regular basis, is with practical application. Practical application, no. <laughs> this is where I might lose some of you. Okay? But just, just hang on with me for just a second because I have a point, all right? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how many times I've seen Hallmark cards, right, and, and memes on Facebook unfortunately take the Bible way out of context to make a point. Again, descriptive versus prescriptive. So um, I think a way to think about that is that it's not, so the Bible, uh, think about it this way, was not written to us, but written for us. Not written to us, but written for us. Now, if that sounds scary to you, I just want you to give you one example. Consider the letter of Philemon. Paul wrote the letter of Philemon. Who was that letter addressed to? It was Philemon. You're allowed to talk, right? Philemon. The letter was addressed to Philemon. The letter was also written for us. We can learn truth from the letter written to Philemon. Okay, so, so understand that. Okay? Jeremiah 29 11. Okay, this is one of my favorite ones, right? How many times have we seen this? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. That sounds great, except, except that it follows a harsh pronouncement judgment by God, who says, oh, by the way, I am getting ready to send you into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Right? So it's in, it's, in, it's in that context, and sometimes it's misused to teach that God would never judge his own people. And I'm not saying you guys think that, or I'm saying, like, that's how it's misused. It's like, um, to teach that God would never judge his own people because of a, he has this certain disposition towards them. But the problem is that the very verse is in a context of judgment. That's the context. Yes, God has a plan, but 
God also punishes sin. And in this case, he did it with 70 years of harsh captivity. Uh, sometimes I hear this one, Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. Okay, well, it sounds like a good verse about prayer. Well, the problem is, it, it's, mis, it's misused sometimes to teach that God reveals special truths to you and to me via prayer. But that verse doesn't teach that. Uh, it was a verbal instruction to Jeremiah, who was living in prison, for Jeremiah to call out to God so that God could show him a vision about Israel's future. See, it has a very specific context that if you just rip that out and stick it on a Hallmark card, right, it doesn't make sense anymore because it's not, it's not in that original context. We can still learn truth from that, right? We can learn about what happened descriptively and we can apply those things. Romans 15, 4 says that those things that were written before time, those were written for our learning. We can learn from these things but we must be careful not to misuse them in practice. And uh, so we just have to carefully balance uh, these, uh, these facts and, and think about it in that way. Um, the Bible records accurate history at any cost, at any cost. Um, but it also teach, teaches mankind what God expects from them. I think it, it's twofold. Right? It teaches what, what God expects, but it also deals with accurate history. So while it teaches eternal truth for all, there are some things that in the immediate context is where that was supposed to be applied. So we need to learn by understanding what it meant to them. That's where we draw our truths from that. So uh, if I could just kind of summarize and we'll, uh, we'll go on to the house here. In, in closing, I think it's important to realize that, that we need to dig deeper in Scripture. We need to kind of like look behind these things. Remember, strange things, hey, that sounds weird. And that kind of sounds weird, like it's, it's contradictory, but these two things don't seem to go together. If you say either of those two things, it means you should probably dive a little deeper, discover the full meaning and the intent of the original authors, uh, and that will lead you into truth. And again, you approach the Bible prayerfully, you approach it with these, you know, armed with this knowledge, but you approach it prayerfully for the Spirit to kind of come in and take over and do His work. He can certainly help you, He can guide you through, the, through these things. Uh, it's, it's 2020, it's the best time. I mean, you can go online for free and get tools that will just help you dig right in to the text of the Bible I mean, in a way like maybe you never have before. And, and this will truly help us to do, as Paul uh, instructed the Corinthians to, uh, to, to move from the milk to the meat. Uh, and if I may say, I do believe that is a prescript, prescriptive truth for all of us. It's been to local times, it's been to the churches in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. We are a local New Testament church. That admonition is just as real to us. Um, it's time to stop kind of sitting by and, 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 you know, not digging into what the Bible has to tell us because it has a lot to say to us in our lives. We just have to dig in and understand it uh, for all it's worth. And uh, once you do that, that'll, I think it will be a good thing to the Christian life.